6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 and 2. God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I wrote upon. So it's at night. He's going to do a, a, a reconnoitering of the city at night. So I went out by night, by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. The journey, by the way, Jerusalem would take about two months, they figure. Uh, Ezra's trip, which was 14 uh, years earlier, took four to five months. But... Uh, Okay. Now the soldiers, by the way, that 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 were on the military escort, they stay in Jerusalem for his protection. And uh, um, I might mention I meant to, oh, that's where I want to mention uh, uh, this guy uh, Sanballat the Horonite. He was apparently from Beth Horon. That's the place. Remember Joshua in the Battle of Beth Horon, the sun and all that. That's about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. The Elephantine Papyri was written 407 B.C. That's about 37 years after all this. Uh, lists Sanballat as the governor of Samaria. So he apparently is one of the Persian officials in the region, but very, very adverse to the Jewish interests here. Okay, so uh, anyway, he's here. Uh, I want you to notice how he does his research. Quietly does his research. He hasn't told anyone while he's there. He's got all the authorities, but no one knows quite. He took three days here to think, to pray, to check things out. And then he makes a careful survey of the the walls and so on. And uh, then I went out to the gate of the fountain and the king's pool, and there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. So we couldn't get by because of the rubble. So, so I went up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And we could talk about where all these various gates are and so forth, but basically he's doing a circle of the, the city. And the rulers knew not whither I went nor what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the rulers or nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, See, now he's ready. He's done his homework. He's got his plan. He's ready. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. And uh, so, see, he's, got a, he's done a secret survey. He's got a workable plan. So now he's... He's landed on them here. You know, he says, Then I said, said I unto them. Who's the them? The Jews, meaning the common people of the group, the priests, the nobles, the whole gang. He's, he's sharing with them his program. And then verse 18, Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for this good work. So once they understood that he was serious that God was behind him, and he also is armed with these authorities from Artaxerxes. He's on his way. But of course, you never have unimpeded progress, right? 
But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant and the Ammonite and the Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye will do? Will ye rebel against the king? They don't know the king's behind them. He's got the authority. They're trying to do anything they can to discourage these people. Then I answered them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of fun. I like that. This is August 1st of 444 B.C. The wall will be finished 52 days later on September 21st. And uh, But I like this, you see. He's, what Nehemiah is saying here, their dependence is not on their abilities, not on human resources, not on personal genius. It's upon the God of Israel. And their hope is in... in, in and they have no share or claim that's present or uh, historic right. That is the, the memorial in Jerusalem. That's what the word really means. So, a couple of things, uh, uh, just a glimpse ahead. I want you uh, uh, to notice Nehemiah's leadership. We could make a whole study of leadership from Nehemiah's handling of this assignment. In fact, Donald K. Campbell points out 21 lessons from Nehemiah. First thing he did, he established a reasonable and attainable goal. That's the first step. What's your goal? Is it reasonable? Is it attainable? He had a sense of mission. He was mission-driven. He wasn't building turf. He, he, was, he had a mission. So a lot of people wonder about coin now. Where's your statement of faith? We don't have to have a statement of faith. We have a mission statement, you know, to create, develop, and distribute educational materials to, uh, to, to, to encourage, facilitate serious study of the Bible as the inerrant Word of God, period. We don't have a statement of faith. There's a place for a statement of faith, but we're mission-driven. Anyway, he was willing to get involved. He didn't just kneel in his bedroom and pray about it. He was willing to roll up his sleeves and get involved. He rearranged his priorities in order to accomplish his goal. Sometimes accomplishing a goal causes us to have to re-examine our personal priorities, get rid of some baggage that we may be carrying. Then he patiently waited for God's timing. He didn't charge off. He let God choose the timing. He spent four months in prayer before even bringing this thing up with the king. He showed respect to his superior. He wasn't a rebel. He was very different, humble, accommodating to his boss. And every place you see him, he prays. All the crucial times. I'm sure sometimes it was with great ceremony and great commitment in the privacy of his prayer closet. At other times it might be just a whispered telegram to the throne room between elements of a conversation. He made his request with tact and graciousness. He was well prepared and thought of his needs in advance. He didn't just shoot from the hip. He got prepared. And uh, he planned out what he needed. The king, he, he got timber, he had all, he, he had everything he needed. He went through the proper channels. He took time to rest, pray, and plan. He investigated the situation firsthand. Didn't take somebody else's word. That night, he went and looked firsthand. So he did what we call in the investment field due diligence. He exercised the diligence due to the situation. And he informed others only after he knew the size of the problem. 
He scoped it first, so he knew what he's biting off. Before you build a bridge, you count the cost thereof, the Lord tells us, right? He also identified himself as one of the people. Now when this guy says, gee, the Lord has given me a great mission for you. <laughs> no, no. The Lord has given a mission for us together, you know. He set before them a reasonable and attainable goal. He assured them that God was in the project. You know, it's amazing how many people donate to a ministry without certifying themselves to themselves that God is really in that project. I think there's a lot of ministries the Lord would set would shut down if the supporters would let them. Well, most of, I don't. I, 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 I've sat on a number of boards. I'm always intrigued with the really knowledgeable ministries that uh, that are uh, that the part of the gift the the, the uh, gift of giving. Is involves a, not a question of need. There's more needs you can possibly meet. It's not a question of need. Is God in the project? Can you see evidence that God is in the project? And if so, you invest behind Him. And uh, He displayed self-confidence in facing obstacles. We're going to see that all the way through here. He displays God's confidence in facing obstacles. He did not argue with opponents. He was not discouraged by opposition. And he courageously used the authority of his position. Paul did too, remember? He even used his Roman citizenship when the time came. He kept his trump cards and played them when he needed them. This list is uh, Donald K. Campbell, Nehemiah, the man in charge. So that ends the formal part of the chapter, but I kept it down to just two chapters because I think there's an addenda that's essential, maybe the most essential thing, uh, in my mind, that if you're going to study uh, the Old Testament especially, and that's Daniel chapter 9. It's, it's the chapter that uh, you can prove that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of Israel. You can't prove the Bible. Yes, you can if you do your homework. This is the chapter that I remember as a teenager that galvanized me into realization that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. And uh, 70 weeks of Daniel, famous passage. Daniel's in prayer. He read from Jeremiah. He's, an, he's a slave. In, he's, a, he's a captive in Babylon. He read, read in Jeremiah that the captivity is about up. So he goes to prayer. There again, he doesn't just sit and put his feet on the desk and say, "Oh boy, captivity is about up." Because I read in Jeremiah. He prays about it, and he prays a prayer acknowledging the sin of of his people. A prayer that goes twenty verses. That as it builds, you can feel him tremble even in the English translation. The frequency of the verbs just start to pick up, almost to a breaking point, when he gets interrupted. This is the interrupted prayer of the Old Testament. And angel Gabriel comes and gives him four verses, the last four verses of Daniel 9, the most astonishing passage in the entire Bible. So it, because it triggers from Nehemiah 2, I, I, I think you need to understand this if you're going to appreciate uh, the whole situation here. The first verse, first, verse 924, is the scope of the whole thing. There are 77s determined upon Israel. 69 of them are in verse 25, the next verse. Then there's an interval between verse 26, 926, then the 70th week. And so you've got 77s, 69 of them, a parenthesis, if you will, and a final seven-year period, the most documented period in the, uh, of, of years in, in the Bible. So let's take a look at it. This is the scope, verse chapter 924. Gabriel says to Daniel, 77, 70 Shabuim are determined upon thy people upon thy holy city. Notice that this is not given to the church. This is not given to all believers. Who's it given to? 77s are reckoned or determined 
upon thy people, Daniel, and the holy city. This is about Jews in Jerusalem. That's what this is all about. Remember that. It, many people get into this, they get so carried away, they try to apply it to things. No, it applies to the Jews or Israel. To accomplish six things. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Six things. Now, we could break each one of these down talk about it, but I think anyone, as you look at this list, it's pretty obvious it hasn't happened yet. Have we made an end of sins? Not so you'd notice. We, take a, a, any morning paper. No, the scope of this prophecy is comprehensive. After these 77s that are reckoned upon thy people in the holy city, Daniel, be it finished transgression, end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, you can argue that happened at the cross, okay, to bring in everlasting righteousness, not yet, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Ooh. So that's the scope of the whole thing. Now the next verse is the dramatic one for you and me. Gabriel says to Daniel, Know therefore and understand. Now let's just get the picture here. This is not a mystery. This was intended for Daniel to know. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah the King, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. There was seven plus 62 is 69. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Now, um, I want you to notice Gabriel is saying to Daniel that from this thing unto that thing is a specific period of time. Okay. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Now realize Daniel's in Babylon, 900 miles to the west, is a, a pile of rubble called Jerusalem. But he's, he's saying, and Daniel may already know, that there's going to be a decree coming along that will allow them to rebuild Jerusalem. The city, not the temple. Notice this. From the going forth of that commandment unto the Messiah the king, the Mashiach Nagid. The word Nagid was first used of Saul. It means the king. That's going to be important to us. Shall be seven weeks. Now, by the way, the weeks are weeks of years, and we go into a whole business as to why. But if you look at Genesis and look at Revelation, you'll discover that God not only speaks of weeks of days, weeks of weeks, weeks of months, and weeks of years in the Scripture. You have week of days. We all know that. There's a week of weeks. The Feast of Shavuot is the Feast of Weeks. It's seven weeks. You have the Feast. You have months from Nisan to Tishri. The year is seven. The, the, the religious year is seven months long. You have uh, weeks of years, the sabbatical year. You have sabbatical years even. So to a Jew, a week can be any one of those things. From the context here, it's clear. What he's saying is 77s are determined, and, they're, 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 and we'll get into that in a minute. Seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Now then notice the Holy Spirit adds a little phrase here at the end of verse 25, and that's helpful. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troubled times. You see, we're going to discover... Uh, this is a way to die. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I want you to notice that the street and the wall are referenced here to distinct. There are four different decrees that you will find in your Bible handbooks. But if you look carefully, three of the four have to do with the temple. Three have to do with the temple. Only one of those has to do with the city of Jerusalem. That's the issue. That's why Nehemiah is so important here. 
Now what this is basically, what Gabriel is saying is, from the commandment you store to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the king shall be three score and uh, uh, two, uh, seven plus three score and two weeks of years. We also discover, and that's we're indebted to Sir Robert Anderson for to underscoring this discovery, that in Genesis and Revelation, God uses 30-day months and 360-day years. And there's a whole background on that that I'll spare you right now, but it turns out to be demonstrably true. So what Gabriel is saying to Daniel, 69 times 7 times 360 is 173,880 days. And so if you realize that God means what he says and says what he means, that the scripture is precise, the word approximate doesn't generally occur, <laughs> is that Gabriel is saying it's going to be 173,880 days from that decree until the Messiah presents himself as a king to Jerusalem. Well, there four, I say there's four decrees. Cyrus did a decree in 538. Darius in, in, uh, simply reconfirmed that decree in effect. And Artaxerxes Langemanus did a decree, remember, in 457, where he stopped, the, he stopped the building of the walls. But it's the one in March 14th of 445, that's in Nehemiah 2, which has to do with the city of Jerusalem. He gives the authority to rebuild. And so that's the key one. So we know that in this little model that Gabriel has given Daniel, that the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem occurred on March 14th of 445 B.C. The problem is, when did Jesus allow himself to be presented as the king? Several times in the Gospels, John 6 and elsewhere. They went to take him as a king, and he slipped away from him. He says, mine hour has not yet come. Then one day, and only on one day, Jesus not only allows it, he arranges it. Has his disciples to go get a donkey, to ride donkey, the donkey in Jerusalem. And he is deliberately fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass, and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. And, and, and we all are familiar with what we call Palm Sunday and uh, the, uh, the, the triumphal entry where Jesus wrote. That's the only... I want you to notice the key word here is king. Thy king cometh unto thee. Jesus is deliberately presenting himself as the Mashiach Nagid on this particular day. It's interesting when you look at this in Luke 19. The crowd... Around him, the, the, the city is filled with pilgrims because it's Passover season. It's four days before Passover. It's the tenth of Nisan. But anyway, they're singing, "Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest." What they are quoting is Psalm 118. How many of you heard the expression, "This is the day the Lord hath made; we shall rejoice and be glad in it"? All the time, we use that. You can apply that to any day, casually, but that's not what it's about. It is the day that Christ presents himself. This is the day that the Lord hath made. And it's one of rejoicing, the triumphal entry. That's what Psalm 118 is really dealing with. And uh, blessed be the king that cometh in the name, glory in the highest, and so on. Now, again, the key word is king. Blessed be the king. See? Now, when they sing that, by the way, the next verse, the Pharisees... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it always intrigues me. When you and I as Gentiles... Reading the Bible are likely to miss something. The Pharisees come to our rescue. Anytime they're upset, that's a clue that it's important. And they're really upset here. Some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, that is the, the, the Lord Jesus, Master, rebuke your disciples. Now you and I wonder, if you just read that, 
what do you mean? They're just singing a psalm. What's the deal? No. The Pharisees understood that the crowd singing that psalm while he's riding that donkey is declaring him the Messiah, the king. They understood that, and they're upset because they presume surely he doesn't want his disciples to be blaspheming. They're declaring him the Son of God. They're declaring him the Messiah. Surely you don't, you know, you want to rebuke your disciples. They're getting carried away. Master, they're getting carried away. They're declaring you the Messiah. That's what they're saying in effect, right? I want you to notice his tactful answer. He said, and answered, said to them, I tell you that if they should hold their peace, the very stones would cry out. Now I always, I kind of wish they'd all shut up for a minute. <laughs> Is that just a figure of speech? Or would, you know, what would have happened? And uh, as many of you probably know, every time we go to Israel, we usually have an opportunity to walk down from the Mount of Olives down to Gethsemane, the second stop. And as you walk down that very road, I always tell before that we, before our gang leaves the buses, uh, when you're going down that road, it's the best bargain in Israel. If you walk down that road, pick up a rock or two and put it in your pocket. They won't mind. When you get back home, mount on a piece of walnut, put it on your coffee table or your desk at work or whatever. And somebody says, what's that? He says, that's one of the rocks. That did, that's one of the stones that didn't cry out. And you got a chance to get into Daniel, you know, Luke 19 and Daniel 9, and they brought it up. You know, it's a great. So, but anyway, um, cost you nothing, but it'll be a treasured possession. Now, the, let's talk a little bit about the chronology of Christ's ministry. His ministry began in the fall of 28 A.D. Tiberius was appointed in 14 A.D. Augustus died in August 19th of 14 A.D. And Luke 3 verse 1 says it was the 15th year of Tiberius. Now don't get confused, don't add 15, it's the 15th year. It's, in other words, he's in the 15th year. So you add 14 to the 14, you get 28. You with me? Now, I always, I always enjoy, when someone turns 50, I always say, welcome to your sixth decade. You see, same idea, if you will. If, if you are in your 14th year, how old are you? 13 and something. Right? You follow me? You're not 14. You're 13 and six months or whatever. Are you with me? So, so it's the 15th year of Tiberius. In other words, he's been ruling for 14 already. So it's 14 plus 4, 28. Anyway, the fourth Passover was April 6, 32 AD. And we're indebted to Sir Robert Anderson, who got knighted. Uh, he, he published The Coming Prince in 1894. And if you want to get into this, he nails all this very thoroughly. And, uh, now, there are people that try to make a different year because they're trying to defend a Friday crucifixion. And there are many good scholars that hold that view. Don't misunderstand me. But there are a number of us that believe that, the, that you can't get three days and three nights between Friday and Sunday. And furthermore, the Scripture clearly says there were two uh, um, Sabbaths that week. Matthew 28 once is when the Sabbaths were passed, plural. Which means there are seven, in addition to the Saturday Sabbaths that we all are familiar with, there are seven high Sabbaths throughout the year, one of which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when the women went to that tomb, there were two, they, they had waited for two Sabbaths to go by, not just Saturday, but either Thursday or Friday, depending on what year and so forth. So anyway, the net, net of it is, is that there are a number of us that believe he was crucified on either, either Wednesday or Thursday. You can make either one work. But, uh, the fourth Passover would have been April 6th, 32 AD. And, uh, uh, we'll move on. So that turns out, well, what, what's this all getting to? The angel Gabriel told Daniel it would be 173,880 days from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem unto the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King. Well, from 445 B.C. to 32 A.D. is 173,740 days on our calendar. 
But you've got to, uh, March 14th to April 6th, that's another 24 days. And you've got to go through the leap year calculations, and I won't bore you with that in detail here. They're all well documented in our notes and also in Sir Robert Anderson's work. It's 116 days. When you get that, that comes to 173,880 days. What was Gabriel's mar- margin for error? Zero. Gabriel told Daniel the exact day that the Mashiach would present himself as the Nagid, the king to Jerusalem. And uh, it's interesting that all of this is part of the Old Testament, Daniel's prophecy and all this. It is translated into Greek in the so-called Septuagint version of the Greek, which was, which was published 300 years before Christ's ministry. It's a matter of secular record. And so um, the possibility of this happening by accident, the possibility that this was contrived, that Jesus somehow managed this on that day to fulfill his prophecy, having been born of the genealogy that was laid out before him, and on and on. There's over 300 details of his life that were pre-written centuries before the fact is the most conclusive. I am more certain that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of Israel than I am my own name or any other fact I could conjure up. I know of no fact that is more thoroughly certified than this one, interestingly enough. But you got to do your homework to do it. Now, let's take a look at what Jesus did that day. He's continuing a few verses later. When he's come near, he's riding the donkey up from Bethany, up over the Mount of Olives, going uh, westward, coming down through the Kedon Valley, and there's the Jerusalem before. When he's come near, he beheld the city, and what did he do? He wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, get this, at least in this thy day, the thing which belonged to thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes. He not only declares this very day was prophesied, he expected them to recognize it, but because they didn't, it's hidden from them. It's hidden. He says so. He declares judicial blindness on Israel right here. You ever wonder why a very bright rap... You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Nehemiah. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.